Hey listeners, Joe here to apologize for dropping this episode a day late, but Ian and I had many adventures that will make it into the podcast at some point. So, you know, at least we were generating content for you. But uh, we are here dropping our episodes this week. And at the top of this episode, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon, who are Nick, Justin, Matt, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Shelly, Tara, the Redmonds, Langenstein, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. It is going to do good work, going to fund good work. You know, overhead is ministry. It is essential to the job. And so we are thankful that you are helping us cover some of our overhead and some of my editing time and the other good stuff that we have in the future. If you have $5 or more a month to spare and would like to help us do stuff like stand up a website, get our social media presence really out there, maybe start a TikTok and spend time on it. You can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. You can also get access to our Patreon-only podcast feed, which this week will have Ethan telling us the history of The Undertaker. It is. It's perfect. It's great. I highly recommend it. And you also get access to the patron-only podcast that Ian and I record, which is called Pillow Talk. This week is the start of our two-part series on true crime and what we think about it and where it comes in and how it intersects with our lives. And we go deep. So tune in for that if you want that, that great, great podcast content. Also, if you're looking for something to binge, Pillow Talk is on the Patreon and there's more than 70 episodes. So if you just want buddies in your ear while you're hanging out in life, we have got you covered. But if you are not in the position to support us financially, there are still ways you can help us out. You can subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice, write and review us on Apple Podcasts, share us on the platform of your choice, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just keep listening because that's good too. And now, here's the show. One, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, this week on the podcast, we have Jesse with us to talk conferencing and sacred art and being a professor and all sorts of exciting things. So Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Will you introduce yourself to our listeners and as much information as you want to share? Sure. Yes. So my name is Jesse Hauf. I use she, her pronouns. I currently live in the Baltimore area. I work at a Church of the Brethren in Southeast DC. It's the Washington City Church of the Brethren. And I also work at Wesley Theological Seminary as their community arts coordinator, as well as adjunct professoring a class each semester. I am originally from the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia area. I moved up here into to Baltimore for grad school where I got my MFA in community art so that's kind of the, the context of where I am. And yeah, I'm excited to, to get into the nuts and bolts of things. Yeah. Listeners, Ian is with us this week instead of Ethan. Hello. I like how you waved first. 
just to, on the podcast that works. You know, I'm, I'm very good at these audio only mediums of entertainment and uh, just incorporating as many gesticulations into an audio only medium as possible, knowing that our dear listeners will never experience the wonders of my facial expressions. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, if you want to see Ian's face, you got to come on the podcast. Okay, back to the interview. Ian will jump in with questions as he has them. But what the first thing I want to start off with is I don't think that many people are familiar with Church of the Brethren. And by many people, I mean, I think I know the name, but I'm not sure I know anything about the polity or background. So can you give us a crash course on your church? Yes. So the Church of the Brethren is one of three historic peace churches alongside the Quaker and Mennonite traditions. So if you're familiar with Quaker and Mennonite, we're, we're more similar in theology with, with their way of things. The Church of the Brethren was started, founded by Alexander Mack, if we're interested in history, in 1708. He and seven other interested folks wanted to practice their own religion, and so they baptized themselves in Schwarzenau, Germany, and thus started the Church of the Brethren in 1708. Obviously, we're a little bit bigger, uh, but not not super huge. We've got, I would say, less than 100,000 Church of the Brethren folks hmm. in the country. Now, we do have other Church of the Brethren in other countries. We have a big church in Nigeria. We've got churches in, let's see, Spain. We've got uh, several churches elsewhere in Africa and others. It's a lot of them, but... Um, yeah, it's relatively small. Our theology focuses on peace building, living simply both in how how we live and what we purchase, living, uh, let's see, peacefully, simply and together is kind of our, our slogan. The full motto is continuing the work of Jesus peacefully, simply and together. So focus on peace building, living simply and in community with others. So that's a little bit of, of what we are. A lot of our churches are in rural areas of the country. Washington City has one. Baltimore, I think, has three scattered around. There's a Church of the Brethren in Brooklyn, New York. I think that's pretty much it until you until you get up to the to, to other areas, but pretty small, pretty spread out. A lot of them are in, on the East Coast, sprinkled throughout the West, and on the West Coast there are some as well. So we're, we're small, but mighty, <laughs> small in numbers, but, but mighty. And did you grow up in this denomination or did you find it later in life? I sure did. I grew up in it. My grandfather, so my father's father was a church of the brethren pastor at a bunch of churches um, in the Shenandoah area, Verlina district. We have, you know, we define things in districts. So basically Virginia, he pastored in a few. And so my dad married a Catholic lady and my parents decided that when they had children, that they would raise them in the Church of the Brethren instead of Catholicism, which was, you know, a, an interesting choice. But I think my mom also was like, oh, Catholics are pretty intense and you're very rooted in the Church of the Brethren and I'm a little bit more flexible. So let's go. Let's go with that. But yeah, born and raised, went, been going to church, you know, since the womb. Wow. <laughs> Just to provide some connectional context. The Church of the Brethren is related to what became the Evangelical United Brethren Church, which is what became the United Methodist Church in 1968. Shenandoah University, where I work, was started as a seminary for the Church of the Brethren. 
in town. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the 1880s, you you all had a, a split, not over slavery, because it was the 1880s, over people. The, the church, I believe, was becoming more liberal, uh, saying that things like gambling was okay and, and stuff like that. Um, and there was a wing that said, no, we don't want any of that. And that split off. The liberal wing merged with the Evangelical Association to become the Evangelical United Brethren Church, which became the United Methodist Church in 1968. But the Church of the Brethren still keeps going on. Is that, does that sound accurate to your history? Sure. I mean, I didn't know that aspect of it. I did know about like the split and and things like that but but things like this like what you just shared is is new to me um though not surprising i just got back from the church of the brethren annual conference which was second week of july this year 2022 and we had some historical things sprinkled about in the conference and so yeah the the 1800 split was in there it's really interesting our history is very interesting and i think like a lot of churches we're we're pretty small and getting smaller in the modern world churches are are getting smaller people are like where are the young people which there's lots of answers to that we're experiencing kind of a split right now which is really interesting and and heartbreaking and weird and um difficult to kind of talk about and and navigate but yeah, it's the history of our churches is, is bizarre and, and still and like ever changing and, and ongoing, really, even till today. Yeah, that's the thing about Protestantism is because we are formed from a split. We're like, let's just split some more. Well, how can it hurt? And I one of my church history professors said that before the Protestant Reformation, instead of the Catholic Church splintering, the Roman Catholic Church splintering, they would just be like, yeah, just go be, be in order, be the Franciscans. We don't care. You're still part of the church, but you are doing your own thing over there. And that's how they dealt with kind of distinct theologies like this until you get to like the aggressive iconoclasm that we went through with at the Protestant Reformation is my understanding. I don't know if that's that yeah. really holds water, but yeah, well, and it's interesting because at our church, we have a lot of statements on, you know, human sexuality. We've got statements on just pretty much any topic, really. And this year, we're really wrestling as a, as a capital C church, we're wrestling with is our, our, our statements causing the split. And I think that's a big point because we have, you know, a statement on human sexuality that is very deep, written in 1983, by the way, and still upheld today. It was just reaffirmed several years ago. And it's just really shocking. Like the language in it is like, uh, you know, this, this is not right. This is what the Bible says. However, we are, we know that there's a lot that we don't know. And we must be in communication with people who are not heterosexual so that we can continue to, you know, live and work together and worship together. Uh, but that that's the part that people ignore the whole must be in communication with. And so we have all of these statements and people are like, that makes me angry. I'm going to leave or we should change this. And it's like, do we need these statements? Do we need these things that say the church of the brethren are like there's there's a difference, I think, between values and political statements mm -hmm. to like keep everybody I, there's a difference between keeping people together and like forcing people <laughs> to to you know uphold an ideology that is outdated or incorrect or what have you so it's really interesting 
Yeah. I mean, that sounds like what the Methodists have been doing. <laughs> um, that it just, mm-hmm. that a lot of that, that sounds reasonable and uh, not reasonable. It sounds familiar. It's not who knows what reason is and all this. Uh, and it's, it's a similar thing is there's a, there's a footnote in the book of discipline that says that this is sinful. And um, regardless of, of how many other ways we try to work around needing to stay in conversation or, or all these kind of things, it always ends up being that um, well, but it's still wrong. And that's, that's the difficult thing is how, how do you stay in community with people who believe something very different from you on like this one little issue, but it's a sticking point, you know, like this is the sticking point because then it does become amplified into these larger political discussions uh, in the United Methodist church. It became, it became a wedge issue for conservatives to gain power is my opinion on it. But um, yeah. Oh, is it, um, what, what, how do y'all feel about the Bible? What, what is the, the kind of stance on the Bible and biblical authority? So Church of the Brethren folks are, are a Jesus-centered church. So we try our best to align ourselves with the teachings of Jesus. You know, our, our motto, like I said, is continuing the work of Jesus. So really focusing on the New Testament, the gospel, you know, big on, big on the story of Jesus and, and his teachings and his miracles which is interesting when talking about, you know, statements of things, you know, cause we have statements that Jesus never talked about. So, right. um, and these are, these are my opinion. I, I, by the way, just to say, I don't speak for the entire church. I just right. am a member of <laughs> a representation of a manifestation of, if you will. Sure, um, sure. So pretty much everything I say is my opinion. Um, but we are a Jesus centered church. We just came out with a new compelling vision for the whole church in this last couple of years, we had a you know multi-year process of thinking about you know what where is our church now, where is it going, and so we came with this compelling vision of Jesus in the neighborhood at its base, um, and expanded upon is together as the Church of the Brethren, we will passionately live and share the radical transformation and holistic peace of Jesus Christ through relationship-based neighborhood engagement. To move us forward, we develop the culture of calling and equipping disciples who are innovative, adaptable, and fearless, which is very saucy, I think. Fearless is, oh, it's great. Innovative, adaptable, and fearless. So we really come back to those three things. What does that mean? What does it mean to be fearless? How, How can we be adaptable? Another big thing about the Church of the Brethren is that we... Uh, have been founded on the idea and basis of not being of the world um, and not conforming to the world, like the modern world. So we have a, a history of like men wearing a very specific type of beard that comes down from the, um, what are these Sorry. called? sideburns <laughs> comes back from the sideburns um, under the chin, but doesn't go up to the lip and no mustache. It's called the Brethren Beard, and there are still some people who wear the Brethren Beard today, um, mostly uh, hipsters that want to be like original, um, <laughs> but, it, you know, so it's the Brethren Beard, and of course, there are, you know, folks that are more plain dressing, obviously, most of us are not. We wear jeans and t-shirts and dresses and stuff like that, but yeah, so we we try to really focus now on Jesus in the neighborhood, so thinking about the Bible, we, we love the Bible. We read it. We reference it, of course, with, I would say with a strong emphasis on Jesus. Okay. That's 
that is interesting. And part of me really wants to pick that apart, but part of me wants to use this to transition and I'm going to transition. Go for so it. How, how does sacred art fit into a church that comes out of the Protestant Reformation? So we're not as big on the fancy art as the Catholics are, and then fits into a church that wants to be big and bold out in the community, but then has art, like how does art, how does the practice of sacred art fit into that vision? That's a, a really delicious question. I think in, in thinking about sacred art, for me, I think of, you know, what what is the art that we have up in churches? A lot of, um, especially Church of the Brethren churches and, and other Protestant churches, you know, there's probably not a ton. Um, we certainly don't have, you know, exorbitant statues and, you know, we don't have, have the things that the Catholics do. But, you know, we have, you know, the stained glass and some of us and, and we have things that are up perhaps that have been painted. Um, for me, the art that I've experienced in church has been a lot of things that people have made for the church and we've just kept. Perhaps they're hanging up, you know, in, in classrooms. Uh, perhaps they're in the form of altars that change, you know, with the seasons or with the liturgy. But I think that it's, it's something that is not always talked about. I think that art is kind of a second thought situation. As an artist myself, to be in, in the church world, I'm always referred to as the artist or the creative person. I'm always asked to do things or asked to serve on committees because I have the artistic perspective. And I think that that's really interesting. I, I appreciate the, the want to explore different ways for expressing art in in sacred places I think that it can be used in so so many ways that people don't often think about um, at my time at Wesley the sacred art kind of turned into bases on campus that are sacred for people to utilize that I, I got the feeling or I, I felt that there was this expectation with me um, not necessarily because people told me this, but I think that when people generally think art and church or art and seminary, it's like, oh, cool. Well, what are you going to make for the chapel? Or, oh, what, what yeah. art is going to happen for worship services? And there's so much more than just the place that you worship and art present in the place where you worship, whether you call it a sanctuary, chapel, church, whatever. There's so much more. And so on Wesley's campus, we have so many spaces and rooms that are designated either for students or commuters or art that um, are not great. You know, it's a lot of cinder block. It's a lot of white walls. It's a lot of dorm room furniture. If you think back to like freshman year college dorm room type furniture, nothing wrong with it. Just, you know, not necessarily inspired for, for creativity and innovation. But yeah, so sacred art for me has turned into sacred spaces and less of a focus on paintings or sculptures and more on the feeling the experience that one has spiritually in a space so i've i've been focused really hard on living rooms and comfortable seating and plants something that creates a, a, a lively atmosphere that's 
kind of the trajectory I've I've been going in. And I do similar work at my my personal church that I work at, you know, creating spaces that are more exciting to use. We've renovated some spaces and turned one space into an art gallery. It was just a storage room and we've given one room that was windowless and all wood paneling. It was very like orange and drab. We like gave it a fresh coat of paint opened up a wall so that some light can come through, you know, it, it makes a big difference to one's spirit when you're, when you're in a space. And I think that it can still be an interesting aspect for folks who perhaps um, are visually impaired. Like there's still a, a feeling that you can get what, what are, what senses are being stimulated? What, what do you smell? What do you feel? How do you experience a space? How is it sacred? And how can art influence that or, or be a part of it in some way. It feels a lot more holistic than I think most people think of when it comes to uh, sacred art. Because Ian, the class that you took on sacred art at Wesley was stole making, right? Yes, yes. That wasn't my uh, religion arts required credit because it was a religion arts practicum. Took it just for fun. I think it was, uh, I don't know if she's still teaching there or not. Kapikian was the professor who taught stole making. She taught a lot of, a lot of those um, religion arts practica at that time. We covered a lot of exactly what you're, what you're talking about. And I can't remember if it was her or if it was um, Dr. Sokolov, who used to be the director of the Luce Center for the Arts, but she would frequently, one of the two would use as an example, social security buildings where, where people go to get their benefits and apply for their benefits, um, whether it's SSI income, whether it's food stamps, whether it's whatever. And someone had noticed just that they were very institutional feeling, white, plain white walls, harsh fluorescent lights. And it's, you go there and it's a very dehumanizing experience. And that's because there was no thought or care or attention put into the like, way we decorate that space. It was a very utilitarian, come in, apply for your benefits, get out, almost like a deterrent, like we don't want you to be here. And so I think there was some experiment or some social experiment done where someone decided we're going to renovate one of these spaces to make it feel more welcoming, more artistic. We're going, we're going to hang art on the walls. We're going to use less harsh lighting, um, give it less of that 1960s office park vibe. <laughs> Feels like common sense now, but like people reported better, feeling better about going to get their benefits and people were less shamed by that experience. There's something really deep, I think, within us that, that craves and longs for that feeling of we're in a curated cared for cared for space if they if they feel cared for and humanized and like they're welcome there then they're just going to stay on benefits for the rest of their lives and not work hard or they will feel like the actualized human beings that they are and be more motivated to to do the things in their life that are necessary to not be on benefits no 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 that's too complicated Sorry. we got to treat them like they're human beings joe is what i'm saying 
I you know I hear you and I know it. When you talked about the the 60s industrial, I was like, now why under capitalism would we create these very communist spaces? And the answer is because they're efficient and capitalism mm-hmm. wants the cheapest thing possible. Um so that's my that's my Marxism coming out. Jesse, what what did that spark in you before I became Christian? Oh yeah. Well, it's a it's a testament to the the power of representation. The 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 if you have something there that isn't usually there or something to change the space a little bit, whether it's art or a person or an ideology, it really does make a difference. I know that I've only been at Wesley about a year now, but I've heard folks talk about just the spaces on campus. And when Aaron Rosen came to be the director, he threw up art everywhere. And we have tons of art in our collection. And so he put it on every single wall in every single office, every nook and cranny, there's art that you can view. And people are like, yeah, wow, it's incredible. Aaron's doing a great job. Like there's art everywhere. It's so, it's so interesting. It engages the community and, and folks who work and our students at Wesley with the Loose Center, which is great because that, you know, kind of building some relationships. If folks want art in their offices, they contact the Loose Center and like, hey, do you have any art laying around? And we almost always do. And so the, the, the presence of art or the presence of something that is changing a space in some capacity really does make a difference. And it's the same for a representation of people in leadership, right? If I'm making a huge jump coming off of my annual conference, it makes a difference when there's more women on stage. It makes more difference when there are people of color, people with disabilities that are speaking from the pulpit or providing leadership, you know, whether it's behind the scenes or in the public view. It really does make a difference in a church that is primarily or has primarily been, you know, led by older white men, cisgender, straight. It's very refreshing to see a young person on uh, a worship team or a coordinating team to hear, uh, you know, a young girl reading scripture. It's also just a nice change of pace, you know, where I, I, I at least am used to hearing scripture from from adults, mostly men. That's fine. But to have that like, oh, oh, it's a young voice, you know, maybe it kind of perks your ears up a little bit more or it helps you hear it in a different light, in a different way, which is beautiful and necessary and important in in many ways. Yeah. And I think, gosh, so often in seminary, we're taught things like that, that like you want that representation uh, because the gospel is present in all of us and, and um and God's spirit works through all of us. But then so often the way we see it being represented at the conference level, say, is really tokenism, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, oh, God, we got to find a brown person. Mm-hmm. You know? Or we got to, do we have a single indigenous person who can do a land acknowledgement? You mm. know? And, and that's what I really wrestle with is that like when you are deeply embedded in a community, there are going to be people in that community that, that fill not tick those boxes, but that like in their richness bring different experiences and we should be honoring those experiences rather than trying to like pull somebody out of the, out of the weeds and say, Mm -hmm. you, we're going to honor this. And yeah, I, I, that's what I find about things that are curated by more corporate entities is they are curated to tick a box, uh, maybe to make a political statement, Mm -hmm. um, but they're not really curated organically. And what I find about, say, the most welcoming, even small church sanctuaries is that, 
sure like the banners up on the walls are not professionally made but they are curated with love by people who care for the space right there's an altar guild who every sunday comes and make sure there's not dust on anything there are people who come and um this is a tradition in rural appalachia i don't know how widespread it is but there's the hanging of the greens where you like every advent you take a sunday and you just decorate the church for christmas and it it's this organic thing that grows out of a congregation and out of their care for something rather than we know what the right statement to make is and we're going to pick the things that make that right statement happen Am I being too cynical or how does that strike you? No, definitely not too cynical. We, I think we have similar wavelengths of, of understanding for things. Also, by the way, yes, hanging of the greens is something I'm very familiar with coming from yeah. a rural small church. Church of the Brethren definitely do that. We do it in, in Washington, D.C. even. We had one this year. It was very lovely after a couple of years of not having that, you know, due to COVID. That was a really special thing. But yeah, I was, I was even thinking earlier about that grassroots movement, bottom up situations that involve people. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I, when I think about like the capital C church or, you know, conference world or whatever, what, what you see represented or what you see being put together is, is the big meta stuff. But what the heart of the church is, is what people are doing at home. What are you doing in your neighborhoods? What are you doing in your congregations? How are you engaging people? I, I led a workshop at this last conference last week called Strategies for Allyship and Welcome. How can we be better neighbors, be better um, Jesus-centered for people who are not us? I mean, you can be an ally to literally anyone. It doesn't have to be necessarily a marginalized community, although it usually is. But how how can you be a better neighbor, be, be, be more Christ-like. And it starts at home and it starts with you. Really. It starts with your heart, with your connection to God and Jesus and, and how you want to see that through. If you're looking around and you're only a bunch of white people in a room, you can ask yourself the question of, you know, oh, why aren't there more people of color in this room? Well, first of all, it's probably because they don't want to be there. It's probably because they don't know you're there. It's probably because they don't know what you offer. It's probably because they may walk by your church, but they have certain ideas of what that church is. It's a testament to what visual representation can do in a church setting. So like we're in Capitol Hill, our church is in Capitol Hill. Lots of people walk by us. Many of us cannot afford to live in that neighborhood, which is another conversation. But, you know, a lot of people walk by our building and and what do people think when they walk by? We don't always think about it because we go in all the time. But to walk by a church, we have a church that's just literally half a block up from us that has a gay pride flag, has a Black Lives Matter sign, has all of this signage up for all of the things that you can get involved in at the church. And our church doesn't really have that. We have one sign that's, you know, every once in a while we put up a little blurb. And that's not necessarily like crapping on my church or anything like that, because I work there. I can make that make that change. But it really makes a difference when you have something out there to say, like, you are welcome here other than a sign that says you are welcome here or all are welcome because that doesn't mean you're welcome here that that's a huge contention of, of churches and people think oh well well we're welcoming it's like well how how do i know that you're welcoming how do i know that as a queer person i'm welcome there how does my sister who is a person of color know that she's welcome you know like you can say it all you want 
but you have to be active about it. You have to actually do things. You have to engage because if you're not, then you're just a person that's like, why don't you see that we're great? It's like, well, you gotta, you gotta show something for it. You can't just expect people to flock to you because you say you're great. Show me why. Yeah. And I think so much, so much of what we run into in trying to move established churches into that kind of fearless space is that people just don't get that the perception of the church as being a place that is unwelcoming or a place that they wouldn't want to be involved in is earned, right? Like that perception comes from somewhere. And so as much as you want to say, it's not me, it's not us, we don't do that. It doesn't matter. People have had experiences and you are lumped in with that experience unless you break out of that, unless you are like fearlessly engaging your community. Man, I, there is, and maybe somebody's already written it, but there's a whole dissertation to be had on like church signage, you know, that how different churches do their signs. Ian and I were talking the other night about um, when I was first a pastor, rolled up to my church and they had a sign saying Pastor Joe Schoenwolf. And I flipped out because I'm like, I'm on the sign, like what in the world? And it wasn't that like I felt, I mean, there are many ways in which I felt undeserving of the title, but it wasn't that like, oh, this is, this is inappropriate for me. It was, I was like, well, this is their church, right? Like I'm here, but I'm only here for a certain period of time. And we all know that. Why are you putting me on the sign? Cause it's not like I'm a draw, right? <laughs> like, it's not like people are going to show up cause they just see a, a name. And then like the phrases that you use and the information that you put out there and, and whether that sign indicates something to insiders as opposed to outsiders, there's, there's so much to think about even just in your signage and how you represent yourself and goodness like church people changing anything inside a sanctuary is a challenge as we all know but changing anything outside too I there's a whole fiasco with the the doors that they replaced on the first church that I served and it changed the way the church looked and some people thought oh this is more modern it's more welcoming and some people thought no our beautiful stained glass is more welcoming because you're coming into a sacred space and you can see the arguments are both sides, right? The other part of it is that it was not as well communicated as everybody thought it was. But yeah, like, and, and people, there were some people who were very focused on what does this say to others? And there are other people who were like, well, how, how do these doors better protect us? And it was always really interesting to see what people prioritized in terms of like the things on the outside of the church. It's just that like, I, so Ethan, our, my usual co-host is not a very artistic person as he, as he is willing to admit uh, he would not have put anything on his walls if his wife had not put the pictures up there for him, right? Like he could not care less without knowing how much he benefits from like a curated space, right? And I think that he would, he would have the same kind of feeling about like, I do not care what the sign outside looks like. How are we serving Jesus? But it's, it is that every aspect of our being can either add to or take away. And so then we do need people with an artistic sense, people who thought about this to say, how is this adding or how is this taking away? And it's so important to incorporate as many voices as possible in the processes, processes of things like that. So I think that a lot of churchgoers get hung up on those tiny, minute details and have such strong opinions and get mad about it and have arguments about it when yeah I mean church doors is important but like they're doors 
you know, like what, how, how is, how is this affecting us more than it needs to? Is this steering us away from the love of God? Is this steering us away from, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, it, it's just important to have as many voices as possible. Now, I'm not saying you have to have every single voice. I don't mean like you need 500 people, all 500 people that go to your church to be a part of every single decision. Nothing would get done and we would just all die very angry. But <laughs> it, making sure that, you know, you're you're including people, especially people with disabilities, like when you go to a church, you know, is if is someone in a wheelchair going to be able to access your church? That that's a huge thing. Is somebody who's blind going to be able to have access or and know as soon as they get there that they have access uh, physically? But it's also a mental thing as well. You know, what services are you providing? Is this a safe space? A lot of churches think they're safe spaces. Many churches are not, especially for queer people and people of the LGBTQ plus um, identities. So it, I I was in my workshop the other day. I was kind of talking about a, a story of if, if you are thinking about your church, if you're thinking about where your church is currently and how you can better serve those in your community and your neighborhoods, think this person walks by your church doors. And it can be any any person. It could be someone in a wheelchair. It could be a queer person. It could be a black person. And, and ask yourself, does this person know they are welcome here? And if you can't answer that question, that's a really great place to start. And now I'm not saying that if you put a Black Lives Matter sign, then all the Black people will rush to your church and everything will be solved. No, but I will say as a queer person myself, when I walk by a church, even if it has absolutely nothing to do with the Church of the Brethren, if I walk by a church and see a pride flag outside, I know I can go in there and I know that I'm going to be welcome there. Now that's a very specific niche, but I, I talk about that all the time, like that visual representation. It's not the answer. And there has to be a lot of work to get the pride flag out there. You know, you can't just put one up and expect everyone to be happy. Some people will be cranky. Some people will be like, well, we don't like flags at all, like of any kind in the church or, or outside of the church. You know, you have to have those conversations to make sure that, you know, you have folks on your train or and if you're not on the same page at least make sure you're in the same book right you're in the same library perhaps you know so it, it really does come down to the conversations that you have but those things really do really do matter when when you're talking about who's who's here who wants to be here how do they know they are welcome here those are really good questions to always ask yeah, welcome and wanted, you know, you can mm -hmm. welcome somebody into a space, but if you don't really want them there, they'll come in once yeah. and they won't come back. Yeah, correct. And art has a huge play in this. You know, if you, I, I have arts programming at my church, we have monthly virtual art nights, then we're trying to get some more in-person stuff going. We had a really big event a few Saturdays ago, a big open house and art day where we had art up on the walls. We were making art. We were listening to music. We were eating food. And stuff like that's just so much fun. We did have some neighbors stop by that have absolutely no affiliation with the church, but live perhaps across the street or down the street. And they were like, oh, like, this is, this is cool. I didn't know this was here. Or yeah, we've been seeing you all work around, you know, have a big dumpster outside and working on the garden. Like, it's so cool to see inside. And we may never see those people again, but we sure as hell let them know that they were welcome there. <laughs> and yeah. not just for Sunday, like people... You know, you can have programming that is not necessarily Jesus-y, 
Like I'm thinking about, um, you know, summer camps that uh, we have a lot of summer camps in the Church of the Brethren that, that are affiliated with the Church of the Brethren. There's a there's a camp that has summer programming for children. And one of their programs, it's like a day camp. Most, if not, I would say like 90 or 95 or 98 percent of the of the kids that go to this camp are not Church of the Brethren at all. But they go because it's a thing that is being offered for children in their community that if it wasn't there, those kids would just be at home or have to find another program to go to. So I think that's another part of thinking about churches, especially in congregations and like um, numbers and like, what, what are you offering? If, if you're looking for more numbers or if you're interested in being more involved, what, what is your church doing? You know, other than like Sunday services and maybe a fundraiser every once in a while, like a dinner or something that you have to buy tickets for, what are you offering? I feel like we're going on a whole thing and I feel like I'm not on topic anymore, but that's kind of where my brain has been going. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Thinking about the ways in which, just as another example of a, another story of how art brought a community together, the the church that I, I sang with while I was at undergrad and in seminary at Wesley was was what is now known as National United Methodist Church right across the street from Metropolitan Memorial United Methodist Church at that time. If you ever have you ever been in that space, Jesse? I have not. So when you go into this space, it's a you know giant cathedral-esque church space. And when you go into the sanctuary, like the very front of the sanctuary has this huge raridos with um, all sorts of religious iconography on it. Uh, and when you look at it from a distance, it looks like it's carved into the stone or it's painted or whatever. But when you get up close, you find out that it's all needlepoint from like the altar to like the very top of the, <laughs> the, the ceiling almost. It's huge and it's needlepoint. And I, I had been singing at National for maybe five years at that point or four years at that point and not known this until someone told me the story of it where prior to there being a Raridas in the space, there was a big red curtain that kind of covered that whole area. And someone one day uh, took it upon themselves that uh, the, the red curtain was looking dusty and so they went and got it cleaned and uh, ended up cleaning it in a way that the entire red curtain dissolved. So they had to do something to like fix this, this work. And so they commissioned an artist who came in and worked with the congregation over the course of months together, needlepoint this Raridas. Lots of members of the congregation were involved in this, in this work until eventually you, it was all hung up and put up. There was one, um, one old lady in the congregation who finished her portion of it and then shortly died thereafter. And it ended up being that her portion was going to be hidden away behind some pillar. And so they ended up taking it out and like framing it and putting it on display along the side. I love that. But it's, it's, it's this thing that no one ever told that story at all until I was, until I was taking that stole making class is when I learned the story of it. And it was just an example of here is this integral part of our worship space now. Like you think of Metropolitan Memorial Sanctuary, you think of this giant Raridas 
And it literally was like the work of the people. It was a liturgical act corporately put together. And that is, I think, when sacred art and religious art does its best is when it the, the community can come together to produce this beautiful, wonderful thing that no one of them individually could put together. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge reason why I love my degree at my degrees in community art. And like, that's it right there. People ask me, well, like, what is that? And it, it can mean so many different things. And it's in its basic form. I always I, I tend to say like it's making art with people and it's involving people and doing art together. And like, that's a perfect example. It's a beautiful example, something that is so prominently there. It's incredible. And the medium is, is fascinating as well. You know, when you walk into churches like that, you think, you know, stone or metal or gold or, you know, whatever, but that that's really beautiful. It makes me think of um, quilters. There's mm. a, a huge quilting you know, community, I think in a lot of churches, but in the, in the church of the brethren, there's the national, oh gosh, I think it's the national arts guild. I could be wrong, but it's something like that where we, you know, primarily women come together and they make quilts and then they auction them and they make quilts for, for people who are retiring or people who have, you know, provided a lot of leadership and how, how sweet that is. And that's a community art form in itself, something that, you know, is made together for a purpose out of, you know, maybe perhaps re recycled materials and, and other materials. It, it, that's just beautiful. And the thing about national space is it is, it's a huge space. Like mm -hmm. you, you should go look at it and, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it, but it's, it has the feel of, um, if not like the national cathedral in DC, a smaller version of that. Like it's, mm. it's meant to be a big space. And what really hit me, Ian, as you were telling that story is you didn't know it. Like you'd been seeing there for five years and you had no idea of this. And when wouldn't it be wonderful if we one day for a children's sermon, like took the kids up to the Rarados and told the story, you know, do it every like couple years so that like you're catching all of the kids. But then like now the kids know, like somebody made that like a real person somewhere, they could make something like this, you know, mm -hmm. and then have that be in children's church that Sunday or whenever, have them make their own art that's displayed in the sanctuary. Absolutely. I was just going to suggest that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like a permanent exhibition because kids are kids, but like, it would be a beautiful thing to say like, no, we all get to participate in this. And we mm -hmm. have this example of it. Why not build from there? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, going back to going back to Ethan, he, this is what he gets for not being available. <laughs> we had an episode on handbells. Cause there was somebody who was like, why on earth should just spend money on handbells when they could be feeding the poor. And I was like, don't come at me with that. Like the reason I'm still in church is because of handbell choirs and how mm. I was ministered to through this and like the music that we can make and the way that it engages everybody. People who like zone out during the sermon are focused on the handbells, you know, like it is, it's, it, it builds community. It's almost like a small group. Like I love church music and I, I think that it's a really valuable thing, but it has to be something that is building community and bringing people together. If it's just there to say, oh, look at our perfect musicians, then that's not it. But like mm -hmm. handbells, you don't even have to read music to play handbells. Like it is something that can genuinely bring people together. And I feel the same way about art. Like you do not have to have a seminary degree to make art. 
I, it might inform your art. I guess it could be helpful, but like, this is something that you can do across education levels, across ability levels, across ages. And Mm -hmm. when it's that, like that's, that can be amazing. It can be so heartfelt. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we hadn't even talked about music and how influential that is, whether it's your traditional church music, like with an organ or a piano I always love a church that has, you know, other instruments or has special music, you know, in every congregation, there's someone that plays a trombone or a flute or the drums, you know, at least in in church circles that I've been in. And so incorporating that, you brought up kids, kids must be involved in as many projects and initiatives as possible. I think that kids and youth often get overlooked because it's like, oh, that's cute, or oh, that's nice, but I think that kids are often overlooked, and their theology is overlooked because it's not taken seriously, because their brains aren't yet developed, but the brains that they do have, and the development that they do have is so fruitful, and so necessary for adults to to be exposed to, and not, not just art making, but what what kids and what youth can bring to worship services, what they can bring to leadership. I, at my, um, conference last week I I saw it not not a lot but uh, maybe two or three youth delegates which is huge now we could probably think uh, myself personally at 15 there's no way I'd be able to be a delegate I would have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about but not all kids are, are like that not all teenagers are aloof and have no idea what's going on I was not necessarily I was, I I guess I could say I was mature, but that didn't mean I was smart or intelligent or or knew what was going on. But so many people do. So many kids are, are not taken seriously. And I think about that with art, you know, we have um, a couple youth in our church congregation that he has a piece that's been up at our altar for the last like two months because he put it up and I was like, this is great. Uh, Let's keep it there. Um, Now we're a pretty small congregation. We didn't need like buy-in <laughs> or like right. change the schedule or figure anything out um also I'm primarily the one that that focuses on the altar space so to have more is great and that's another thing too is is collaborating and what what kinds of things can you do with your congregation or with kids to create an altar piece we have a, a collaborative piece up right now where each of us made little flowers out of fabric and we organized them and put them up on our altar for easter and it's still up because I don't want to take it down because everyone was involved in making it. And it was a really sweet, special thing. But yeah, kids, kids got to be involved and youth have to be involved because I think that the, the more we involve it and, and again, not tokenize, not say, oh, you're a good speaker. Come, you know, be a worship leader every single Sunday. No, listen to the youth. What, what are they interested in? What do they want to learn? I haven't been to a Sunday school in many years but I, I, I remember not having any agency in what I was learning. I wasn't asked, well, what are things that interest you? Um, because there was already a curriculum in place or, you know, somebody had to fill in last minute because nobody wants to teach a bunch of, you know, 13 year olds about Jesus, or maybe they do, but I, I was uninterested because um, it was, you know, it was kind of boring, like, sorry, it was boring to me. And I just went because my parents wanted me to go, but, but how can we really engage and involve and have dialogue with, you know, that's, that's something that I'm passionate about is, is kind of breaking down the institutionalized structures of certain things, whether it be worship or education, 
and how can we make it more bottom-up grassroots like why can't church just be dinner at someone's house I, I especially since COVID if it's been craving sitting and talking with people having people over drinking wine eating food that we make for each other that's more church than Sunday services to me I mean it's just it's a different thing you know you you have time for like you know singing and reflection and and focusing on what the the preacher or the speaker is saying but those moments that you're sitting down with people and talking with people whether you're talking about Jesus or not, Jesus is there and God is present. And those interpersonal connections just mean so much. Yeah. And I, I love that that has been kind of this bookend of this conversation is going from that idea that's kind of, kind of in that new statement of a faith that y'all have that, or that vision of wanting to be in the community and wanting to be fearless about it. And then coming back to at the end, like, well, how do we build community? Where does it come from? I mean, it comes from like sharing meals together, which Mm -hmm. is why our most sacred time in a church service during communion is sharing a meal together. Now we have like stripped it of all its meaning. (laughs) That's what communion is, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you said earlier that we were off on tangents, but I think the through line that's been, that has come to me through all this is that there are so many ways to be creating and fostering community. And there are so many barriers that the church often puts in the way of that and art and many other things can be a way that we remove some of those barriers and and foster Mm -hmm. better community. And I think that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm all for fighting the patriarchy and, and de destructurizing things there's there's a need for structure but i think it, it can sometimes hinder hinder the spirit from moving there are times where you need smaller groups of people so you can get stuff done and there are times mm-hmm. where you need to just see what god does yeah mm-hmm. yeah yep I, this has been wonderful you have time for a mini so do you have another half hour yeah sure okay perfect well we will do that but thanks again for coming on for this main episode yeah thanks for having me yeah ian will you sign us off sure thing friends this has been an episode of what the hell is a pastor we are jesse joe and i am ian and we will see you next time what the hell is a pastor is a part of the disruptive disciples podcast network our theme song is written by Joe Shomolf, performed by Joe Shomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptivedisciples, on Twitter at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to pillow talk, merch, signed cards, custom essays, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and be fearless, friends. <laughs>